0: Again, everyone. Um, so, our Bible reading today, um, if you've got this Bible, is on page 790, and the other version is on page 1120. So, Acts um, 22, starting at verse 30. The next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused of by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit here, there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I was struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, You dare insult the God, God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest, for it is written... Do not speak evil about the ruler, of the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, "My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead." When he said this. A dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if it is a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot when they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition, petition the commander to bring him before you, on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. When they were ready, to, we are ready to kill him before he gets there. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, she went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called on one of the centurions and said. Take this young man to be to the commander, he has something to tell him, so he took him to the commander. The centurion said, "Paul the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, "What is it you want to tell them? Tell me." he said. The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, do not tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called the two of these centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor Felix." He wrote a letter as follows. um, Claudius Lysias. To His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him but I came with my troops and rescued him for I have learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they are accusing him so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accused had had to do with questions about their law. But there is no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of the plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carried out their orders, took Paul with them during the night, and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they led, um, they led the cavalry to go with, on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry returned, arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Sicilia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. They ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace.
1: If you've got your outline there, you'll see in the introduction it says, Storms of life. But that's a misprint. That was last week's sermon, friends. Uh, So that little section needs to get tuned up to be a man on a mission. If you've got a pen, you can write in a man on a mission. But that's... uh, where we're going to be headed now. Let's uh, come before our Lord in a word of prayer. Let us us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for this day, this time together that we share, as we can think uh, carefully about your word. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand it and appreciate it. Help us to respond to you in faith and love. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. A man on a mission. It reminded me uh, reading about Paul the missionary of a song that I used to hear in the 1980s by a band called Eurythmics. Don't mess with the missionary man. Don't mess with the missionary man. Well, the missionary man, according to the song, he's got God on his side, he's got the saints and apostles backing up from behind. Black-eyed looks from those Bible books. He's a man with a mission, got a serious mind. Well, what's the take-home message there? Don't mess with the missionary man. He's a man on a mission and he has a serious mind. Why does he have a serious mind? Well, presumably it's because some things in life are serious, aren't they? Some things... Are serious, of course they are. It wouldn't take us very long for each one of us to rattle off a few serious problems in the world at the moment. Just a glance at the headlines of newspapers, or even the uh, the news as we flick it on in the evenings, doesn't take take us long to be reminded of serious problems like the serious rises of the floodwaters, both up and down the coasts. There's the serious interest rate rises that are being threatened to combat the serious rises in prices. And then there's been no end in sight yet to the serious war in Ukraine. And we still don't understand yet how serious this new strain of COVID is going to be, one called Deltacron, the, the, the hybrid. Well, of course, serious problems uh, exist in the world, don't they? But that's not the last word on seriousness, though, is it? Because there's also some serious hope that's offered to us from God in his word about his plans for the world. And that message of hope comes today from Paul, the missionary man, with a serious mind, but serious hope that's found in Jesus. In Acts chapter 22 and 23, we notice that some try to mess with the missionary man. In the first section, we see it's the priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what do we see about this missionary man? Well, he's got God on his side. Let's uh, turn now and hear some words of hope from this serious-minded missionary man. Let's look at this uh, action. It's a bit of an action-packed section, this, and drama of Paul, the missionary man. Well, the first section is about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. Paul's before them. Things have been moving very quickly in this part of the Bible. We've got a few chapters here, but it's only been a couple of days. He's uh, only a few days ago landed in Jerusalem. And since that time, he's been in and out of the barracks as he's been bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something that uh, Jesus told him he would do back in Acts chapter twenty-two, fifteen. 15. You will be my witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And so this is a, a guy who's got a message about Jesus for the world to hear. And now Paul's brought to witness before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and the Roman commander brings him before the Sanhedrin because he's trying to figure out exactly uh, what the charges against Paul are. What are the Jews actually accusing him of? So this is not actually an official trial of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Paul's still under Roman jurisdiction, but he's trying to get to the bottom of what these accusations are about. Well, when Paul's before Ananias, the high priest... He barely uh, gets a word out, doesn't he? Because he's, um, he's struck in the face. The words in 23 verse 1 about fulfilling his duty to God in good conscience was just too much for the, the high priest to hear. He probably deemed it blasphemy or lies. Paul probably doesn't mean that he's perfect here, by the way. It just means that he's conducted himself in in the right conscience and where he's sinned, he's turned back to God also. He doesn't realise it, but he's actually um, speaking to Ananias, the high priest, at this point. And after he's been struck in the face, Paul tells him that God will deal with him too. In verse 3, if you're following along, he says... God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. This uh, criticism about being a whitewashed wall is saying that something looks pretty good on the outside, um, but inside it's not very secure. It's not very good at all. I've heard about some places that have been flooded up the coast where they've had a bit of building work done and builders come in and and there's still been moisture and mould in the, uh, in the walls, and they've just put some gyprock over the top, and she'll be right. How long do you think that'll last? Not very long. No, it's, it's a disaster. And so that's what Paul's saying. You, you might look good on the outside. You're supposed to be an exemplary lawkeeper, But Paul hasn't even been tried yet, and he's being ordered to be struck in the face. Now, Paul uh, seems to have respect for the office of the high priest, but on account of this action, he seems to have a lack of respect for the man who holds the office. And so we see Paul backtracks a little bit in verse 5. Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest, for it's written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Now, Paul's uh, got a high view of uh, the authorities that God's, God's placed there for our good. He writes about that in. Romans chapter 13 about honouring those in authority uh, their place there so that society doesn't fall into anarchy and instead peace can prevail but here he also gives an example of where one who's in authority can be reminded about what their job is he can remind someone in authority what they must not do and so in doing so as Paul uh, speaks back if you like he's holding this authority figure to account. Now, as we think about uh, ourselves as people who are under authority uh, in society, I think as we uh, get to vote for our leaders, uh, we can have a little bit of accountability take place there, can't we? That's a small way we can uh, hold some in authority to account. There's other ways to hold authorities to account as well. Uh, Certainly within our church, if there's misdemeanours and abuse, uh, there's posters around to ring up the conduct protocol unit and hold people to account. If things get serious enough, we also speak to the police concerning those in authority who might be doing the wrong thing. But at least in this case here, we see the Apostle Paul, he uses his voice to call one, in authority to account. Well, in the next section in the story, Paul moves on to others in the Sanhedrin. These are the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We're familiar with the, uh, these people from the Gospels. The Pharisees were a group who had influence. And I'm wondering today if, uh, if we would call them influencers... These are influencers without uh, Twitter or Facebook, probably a bit like me in that regard. Uh, but they had influence with the people of Israel, and it was through their particular, particular traditions and some of their approach to things like prayer. Uh, they like to a little bit different to us. They like to get on the street corner and and pray. That was one of their favourites. They like to be in their flowing robes. They liked a bit of attention like that. And the Pharisees valued teaching of the law. In fact, they overshot in many respects. But they also counted serving the Lord. Not all of them were disastrous, by the way. We come across some good Pharisees like Nicodemus in the Gospels. Uh, They counted serving the Lord, even apart from the temple, as being important. The next group was the Sadducees. They tended to be a group of aristocrats who descended from Zadok the priest in the time of King David and many of them served in the temple in Jerusalem. They were known to be at odds with the Pharisees over various issues and the kind of issues that they're at odds with the Pharisees about come up in verse 8. If you're following along, there's a list there. Verse 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. Well, whilst Paul's witnessing to this uh, group in the Sanhedrin, he seizes the opportunity, doesn't he, to divide the crowd on this particular topic of his hope in the resurrection of the dead. We see that in verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. Now, whilst the um, Pharisees may not have believed that Jesus himself had risen from the dead, they could still support Paul in his belief in the resurrection of the dead. We see some of that in verse 9. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong in this man, they said. Whatever spirit or an angel has spoken to him. Well, things have once again heated up uh, with Paul at the centre of a storm. We see this in verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. This is a traumatic time for Paul, but he finds support from Jesus. In verse 11, The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, "'Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, "'so you must also testify in Rome.'" So we see once again that Paul has uh, as the missionary man he's been bearing witness to the Lord Jesus what he's done in his life and his his witness of actually seeing the risen Lord Jesus who he came to realize is the son of God. He's done that in Jerusalem and he's comforted with the knowledge that he will do that in Rome. He's comforted in the knowledge that the Lord will take him there. That's Paul's hope. Paul's hope is in the resurrection of the dead. But what about you and I? What kind of hope do we have in life? At one level, it's funny to see Paul use this topic of the resurrection to divide the crowd. Yet at another level, the um, resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the hope of resurrected bodies really does give Paul hope in life. It's a serious hope that he has. He understood this uh, to be something that would take place in the future because he was familiar with the Old Testament that talked about the, the bodily resurrection at the end of Daniel in chapter 12. And he wrote about uh, the fact that Jesus is described as the first fruits of those who will be raised. If Jesus has been raised, then he's saying to the Corinthians, don't worry about those who've died because they'll be risen with the Lord. And then the Lord, when he returns, he'll take us to be with him also. And Paul points out that uh, we can have hope in this resurrection as well. In Romans, oh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied among all men. The message there is, if, if we've um, only got hope in Jesus now, and there is no resurrection of jesus or there is no resurrection of the dead then we're, we're wasting our time we might as well uh you know go to the beach today instead of meet as the people of the lord jesus but the fact that jesus is risen the fact that paul has witnessed the risen lord jesus it's changed everything he's got a living hope now of the resurrection of the dead and we've got that real hope as well as we anticipate that time when God renews all things Uh, life's not meaningless we live in the knowledge that God knows how we live and he's going to renew and commit to this creation that he's already made as good as we uh, walk through life and we face serious threats the things the kinds of things that I listed at the start of this sermon We also have some serious hope. It's not the end of the matter. There are difficult things in life that we experience. There's things that people worry about at night and lay awake thinking about. But that has to still be countered with the hope that's given in this, this word from God, that it's not the end of the story. There are disasters, there are difficulties, but God gives us a serious hope in the resurrection and a renewed creation. And so, like Paul, he lives with serious hope, so can we. And this is something we, we ought to feel the weight of, this, um, this hope that's held out to us as well. well. Let's move now in the story to the plot against Paul in chapter 23, 12 to 22. Luke's a great storyteller, isn't he? More than 40 Jews take a vow that they won't eat or drink until they've got their man, the Apostle Paul. And the priests... And the elders deal with the Roman commander asking him to get another hearing with Paul in verse 15 on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. They want to get Paul this time. But the word spreads, doesn't it? Maybe there's whispering that begins... The news gets out that there's these 40 who want to get hold of Paul. Whispering begins as there's men who are skipping their meals. Why are all these guys missing their meals? And maybe the word starts to get out. It's a bit like when uh, a lady has a baby within our church and the the news gets out that somebody's had a baby. It doesn't have to get to the bulletin before we hear the news has gotten out problem at my place is my wife always asks me, and what kind of baby is it? And I say, I I didn't ask that question, whether it's a boy or a girl. She says, Peter. (laughs) News gets out. And it turns out that not only does Paul have a sister, he's got a nephew as well. And this nephew in the providence and sovereignty of God overhears this plot, and he brings about the news of the attack to the Romans in charge. Verse 21. He says to the Roman centurion, Don't give into them, into them, because more than forty of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have him have, have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Well, here's a bit of God's providence, isn't it? It just so happens the nephew's there and he can tune in and foil this ambush. God's providence is a mystery, isn't it? Because we know that some things in life don't always seem to work out very smoothly or easily. And yet... In, in a strange way, sometimes when we look back, even through difficult times, we can see God's hand at work. It's interesting, isn't it? Even through certain circumstances and events which we think are, are going to be disastrous, uh, that brings us closer to the Lord, to be able to hear his word more carefully and think about our responsibility to what it means to be people who love and serve the Lord more. Even as we look back in life, things that we thought were pretty average at the time turn out to be the things that God seems to get our attention in life. Well, Paul seems to be facing some high drama here, doesn't he? I've never had a situation where I've had 40 people or more want to kill me. It's bad enough with a few kids at school who wanted to sort things out with me at the bus stop, but uh, not 40. And... uh, I imagine this was a very difficult time in Paul's life where he felt frightened. Now, we're no Apostle Paul and uh, we can find things that still frighten us. There's different threats that we face, even if it's not 40 assassins. But that doesn't mean that the things that we face in life that we find frightening aren't real. The things that we worry about are real to us. And at times we can feel a bit overwhelmed too. But here we see Paul trusts in the providence of God. And we can also take something from Paul's confidence in the Lord as well. As we walk through life, we, um, we live by faith, not by sight. We can't see the future. We can only look back and see how God's worked in our lives. But here we get an example of how God in his sovereignty works about, works through things and brings about his plans and that we can take some encouragement from that also. Let's keep moving now and have a look at Paul getting one step closer to Rome in chapter 23, 23 to 35. The Roman commander gets organised and prepares to send Paul upstream in the chain of command to Governor Felix. One minute Paul's facing the threat of being assassinated and the next moment he finds himself on horseback heading out of town and surrounded by hundreds of Roman troops. Did you notice that uh, Commander Lysias put quite a positive spin on his management of the situation? In his letter to Governor Felix, he absolves himself of any wrongdoing Despite the fact that he's had Paul tied up earlier, ready to give him a beating. Lysias portrays himself as a bit of the hero in the story in verse twenty seven. He says to Governor Felix, This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned that he's a Roman citizen. Well, I wonder how he found out that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. In some, he's saying, there, Governor, I came to the rescue. And Paul's innocent anyway. He doesn't deserve anything like death or imprisonment. And by the time Paul gets to... Safety and arrives on the coastal city of Caesarea, Governor Felix wants to know which province Paul is from. I wonder why he wants to know which province Paul is from. Well, we've seen this kind of thing with Jesus too. In Luke 23, when Pilate learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Perhaps Felix wanted to know if Paul's from his jurisdiction or not so that he doesn't have to deal with problem Paul. He can push problem Paul off his desk and onto someone else's to deal with him. But it turns out that Cilicia is actually a Roman province and one that he's got some responsibility to deal with. And so he tells Paul that he will hear his case but it's only after his accusers will arrive. Paul will continue to bear witness to Jesus as he finds himself getting deeper and deeper within the Roman legal system. It'll continue to lead him to Rome. But do you think that Paul would have figured that he'd be snatched away in the middle of the night and put on horses and surrounded by hundreds of Roman soldiers and led away in safety from his assassins? Can you imagine the sinking feeling that he would have had when he realised that there were so many people ready to to kill him and the relief that he would have felt when he found himself surrounded by these hundreds of soldiers and riding out of town into safety? At this point, uh, I think the application is that God works in surprising ways. Earlier, the Lord Jesus has stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And Paul's now seeing how God's bringing about those plans in a very surprising way. Well, it's interesting that Paul uh, gets this special uh, rescue And uh, as I said earlier, as we look back in our lives, we can see that God actually works in surprising ways in our lives too. A verse that sort of puts this into perspective is Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And it's certainly true, isn't it, that uh, God works in surprising ways. Even as we think about the very gospel itself, uh, it's surprising to think that God would save the world through Jesus dying and rising. That's that's not something we would have necessarily thought up as the way to save the world. Paul notes about this strange way in 1 Corinthians 1.22. He says, Jews demand... Miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Uh, We serve a God who has a surprising way of bringing about salvation. Well, we've seen in this section today that there's a few people who try to mess with the missionary man Paul, but that he's got God on his side. He's a man with a mission. Testifying in Jerusalem and he's on his way to testify at the centre of the known world in Rome to the goodness of God in his life, to Jesus the Son of God who comes and lays down his life to bring life and forgiveness of sins. Paul had a serious mind and he had a serious hope about the resurrection of the dead and that's a message for, of hope for us, isn't it? But it's not only a message of hope for us as we think about our responsibilities as we capture something of the logic of the gospel going out in paul's life we can see that we can play a role in that mission as well this is a message of hope for all people who have their faith in jesus that uh, death is not the end life's not one darn thing after another and then you die there is a message of hope of life with god forever it comes through the resurrection of jesus the first to be raised, the one who will raise us as well. And so as we proceed this week and in the, in the following weeks, I mean, we've been given a little invitation, this cute little multicoloured invitation about inviting people to uh, the Easter service. It would be interesting to think about who we could pray about and ask to come along to hear the good news about Jesus and we can participate in this mission as well. Well, we've been reminded that there are some serious problems in life, but we're given some serious hope of a renewed world. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God will raise us as well. And as we um, get ready to move into this week, let's take comfort from God's work, uh, not only in Paul's life, but his work in our life. Let's remember that section from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that says, "...and we know that in all things..." God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. Let us pray. And Lord God, we give you thanks uh, for being a sovereign and good God who is in control of all things. And we give you thanks that uh, you promise to bring in your kingdom. And since Jesus has risen from the dead, we give you thanks that we've got hope that we'll also be raised with him, with you in glory as well. Lord, we give you thanks that Paul was prepared to uh, share the good news of salvation both in Jerusalem and ready to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the message of salvation. Lord, we give you thanks that we've been able to hear that in our lives and that you've, you've saved us and made us your own. We give you thanks for the comfort that it is to stand in your grace and enjoy your forgiveness. We thank you that we live with hope in life of being with you forever into eternity. And, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be mindful of also reaching out and sharing that there is hope in life that comes through Jesus with the people you place in our lives. Lord, we thank you for these encouraging words today. We thank you that you care for us and you provide for us. And we give you thanks for these things. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.